Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Distressingly, alarmingly, now horrifyingly for both of us, nearly 20 long years have now passed since I first came across our guest this week, the one and only Jennifer Renee Saki, and she was working as the deputy press secretary on the doomstruck 2004 presidential campaign of one John Forbes Carey, a job that came after a career jump-starting couple of jobs on the re-election campaigns of former Iowa Democratic Senator Tom Harkin and Governor Tom Vilsack, and before gigs as the communications director for former New York Congressman Joe Crowley. That's the guy who uh, AOC beat in that primary. Remember that? And regional press secretary at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, where Saki worked for the first time for the force of nature slash bird flipping lunatic, who would later be her boss in the White House, Rahm Emanuel. Having survived that particular trial by towering inferno, Saki made the most important, life-changing, career trajectory altering, and at the time, arguably logic-defying, but certainly incautious decision of her career turning down a job offer from Hillary Clinton's nascent 2008 presidential campaign and going to work instead as the traveling press secretary to a freshman U.S. senator with big ears, mixed race lineage, and the middle name Hussein. And, well, as they say, the rest is history. History's tidal forces carrying Barack Obama into the White House and Saki right along with him, first to the post of deputy press secretary and then deputy communications director at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, then to National Press Secretary of Obama's re-election campaign in 2012, then to the State Department, where she served as spokeswoman to another old boss of hers, John Kerry, and then back to the White House, where she finished out Obama's second term as communications director. Given Saki's creme de la creme de la comms savant resume and the extraordinary facts that in every one of that litany of high-profile jobs, the following things are all true. A, she played nearly error-free ball never becoming enmeshed in scandal or embarrassing herself or her bosses, being reputationally torched by any flaming right-wing freak show conflagrations. B, she was seen almost universally as smart but never pretentious or condescending, hyper-capable, dignified and professional, but also charming, funny, approachable, idealistic, and public-spirited. C, the most notable exception to that consensus was voiced during her time at Foggy Bottom by Vladimir Putin. His stooges in the Kremlin and their propagandists, both in Russia and the United States, which is to say it was the kind of criticism that's actually a badge of honor. And finally, D, in a town full of treacherous, backbiting vipers and torso-crushing, front-hugging boa constrictors, I mean Washington, Saki emerged as someone whose success inspired little envy or enmity and was in fact earnestly applauded by people of goodwill in both parties. And given all of that, it came as a surprise to precisely no one when President Biden named her to be his first White House press secretary in January of 2021. What did come as a surprise to some was that her press briefings turned into a pop cultural phenomena, as her frequent tart brushbacks and occasional brutal beatdowns of White House reporters who trafficked in bullshit, bad faith, or both. I'm looking at you, Fox News, Peter Ducey. All that stuff she did, it all went viral online and earned her a large and vocal cheering section for what became known as Saki Bombs. 
As Jen told me when we chatted, there was both savvy strategy and serious principles in play whenever she decided to start strafing the briefing room and sounding a little like Robert Duvall as Colonel Kilgore in Apocalypse Now saying, I love the smell of sake bombs in the morning. But Jen also admitted that she was as surprised as anyone that her tactics became, you know, a thing. I have two sisters who have sake bomb sweatshirts, which they wear. They're very supportive, but they wear them like on the phone just to be like ironic sisters, right? But being at the State Department and dealing with, we talked a little bit about Russian propaganda. There's propaganda from all sorts of outlets around the world who have state-run media in that room. It made me actually more fierce as a spokesperson because you realize you have to cut off disinformation pretty rapidly. So no, you don't do that because you want to like be, I don't even know how to become, you know, you do that because Again, in the moment we're living in and the moment I came into that job in, you could not. It was like, let's reset the tone. Also, this is not going to be a room for speechifying propaganda. So we're going to cut that off. There is plenty more where that came from on this episode of the podcast, as Jen and I covered a wide and wonderful waterfront of topics about which she had things to say about how it feels to be making the transition from government to media as she begins her new life as a political analyst on MSNBC and host of a soon-to-be-launched new show on Peacock, about big stories of the past week from Hurricane Ian to the Iranian women cutting their hair as a form of protest there, and what it's like to no longer have to address those stories in an official capacity from the podium with the eyes of the world scrutinizing her every word and gesture, about her tangles with Putin and the astonishing degree to which, even with his iron grip on Russian media, he seems to be losing control of the narrative when it comes to the war in Ukraine about the largely unrecognized but deeply, deeply true fact that President Obama, for all of his otherworldly performance skills on the big stage, is deep down an introvert, about the moment in her time working for Obama that moved her the most and that she knew instantly she would remember forever, and about how, despite all of her glaring talents, her gleaming good character, her dogged decency, and her incontrovertible kindness, Jen has often struggled, like so many of us, with imposter syndrome, the worry that she's not really deserving of any of the praise that comes her way or wasn't really qualified for any of the jobs that she has done so exceedingly well. Saki's discussion of her fears and doubts is one of many deeply relatable moments from our conversation and one that just goes to show that no matter how successful the people you see in high places are or how happy or comfortable they seem to be, at any given moment, they too, like you, are often battling fiercely, if quietly, with their own very own and very private forms of hell and high water. As far as Hurricane Ian's path, it has become more defined, but as with any hurricane, it can still be unpredictable. This means that it is more important than ever that communities inside and outside of that projected path that you see, that you stay vigilant. And so my message to those who may be watching at home, get ready and do not underestimate the potential that this storm can bring. Know where you are going to get your information. Listen to your local officials and heed their advice. They are trying to keep you safe. Have a plan to communicate with your family. So that's Deanne Criswell, the FEMA head, talking about this, the story of the week, Hurricane Ian. And we have Jen Psaki here. I mean, like, talk about a hurricane. She's a woman who's about to hit cable news like a hurricane herself, just in her new job at MSNBC. Welcome oh, to- like the a me- hurricane. I like that. Is a yeah. hurricane good? Bad? Yeah. It seems bad. It's a Hurricanes good- it's a, are bad. 
It's a good Bob Dylan song. I won't sing it here. There you but, go. Um, you know. <laughs> please um, do. Please do. If I asked you about Deanne Criswell and what it was like when you were White House press secretary and things like this would happen, you know? Yeah. You're always happy to have like a competent FEMA director who can come in and like, you know, do all the things that you're supposed to do to be like a good steward of the national well-being. But like, as you watched all this coverage all day long on your new job, in your new, on your new network, and all Sig Cable Networks, wall to wall weather, right? Do you sit there and go, I know this is important, but man, like just nonstop storm coverage is really kind of irritating. <laughs> in fact, you know, it's like, where is the real stories? Like, I, you know, okay, I feel bad. Like, you know, but shouldn't this be a local news thing? Why does national news cover like the, the, the hurricane in Florida, Florida as if it's like a world war? I mean, why are they covering? Can we just go like dark for a moment? I mean, they're, I think everybody's covering it in part because where it is, of course, yeah. and yeah. who is the governor of that state. Yeah. And also because storms people want to have information they tune in actually they still turn on the television to get developments on storms and big crises like that so we know that but jen you're allowed to say because be, because weather because weather rates is what you're trying to say in weather the, in the rates lingo. sure what, i don't the, know all the lingo yet i don't yeah. know all the lingo yet i'm just going to speak yeah. like a normal person which mm -hmm. is like people care where the weather when the weather's going to impact their community and right. hey i'm in virginia i i'm worried about when the storm's going to hit me too so it's, it's really genuinely great to see you. And I, I, every time a thing like this happens now, you're like the person who I'm like, I wonder what Saki's saying about this. And, you know, <laughs> thank you. It's a national. Other people feel that way. And then it carries over to your new gig. Right. Because it's like, you know, a good White House press secretary becomes, even if you're in the other party, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I've never been in a party, but if you were in a party, a good White House press secretary, you have the instinctive reaction of, I wonder what so-and-so is saying about it. You know, I wonder what Mike McCurry is saying about it, you know, speaking yeah. of like an iconically great press secretary. No, iconically great, the best. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I thought about how to do that job, I, one, talked to a lot of people who had done the job, uh, right. Democrats and Republicans. And yeah. you kind of learn about, you know, in a moment like this, when we're looking at a storm, what are you doing as the White House press secretary, right? If you're right. doing your job the right way. I mean, there are really important, interesting political questions given who's governor of Florida right now, right. DeSantis. But <laughs> you are also, you know, I got into government, as I think actually most Democrats and most Republicans do, last administration aside, um, mm. because they want to make people's lives better, right? right. And yeah. they want to provide information. And right now, I, you know, I was thinking, like, what is Deanne Criswell doing today? You know, what is she? She's someone I did spend a lot of time with because there were a number of storms when I was there. And yep. She's like made for that job. You know, she kind of has like a go bag under her desk and she's ready to go right to the heart of things when it happens. And, you know, it makes you realize like government can be good for people. It can make people's lives better. I'm still a believer in that after many tours of duty in government. Did you have a go bag under your desk as White House Press Secretary? No, uh, I was not the FEMA administrator, no. nor was I overseeing troops or anything of that sort. Um, you know, I traveled obviously with the president, but but I wasn't tasked yeah. with that sort of thing. They just figured if, if there was something bad that happened, somebody would come and get you because they would need you to be the spokesperson, even if there was like an apocalypse of some kind. They're like, you they, they might need me to go out and explain what's going on, but I don't know that they needed me to oversee the management of, you know, cleaning up from after a storm. When I worked at Bloomberg, you could imagine when we got there in the summer of 2014, there was a go bag underneath the desk. And I was like, what is this thing? And I opened it up and it was like, there was seriously like stuff in there 
gas masks and like hazmat little yeah. like mini hazmat suit. I'm like, if there's a nuclear war, the Bloomberg dung beetles were all going to survive because we could all put on our, our hazmat suits and our gas masks. It was all going to be fine. I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And I don't really think I wanted. I felt like Josh Lyman, you know, yeah. on, the white, on the West Wing, kind of like, I don't want to be the one who survives this. Like, I want to die with my friends, you know? Well, I mean, <laughs> it is true that you realize, like, kind of, because I have had a lot, I've done a lot of different jobs in the White House, and some <laughs> mid-level, some higher level, yeah. that, like, there is a difference between who survives and who doesn't. If there is an attack on the White House, when uh, you get, exactly, bags like that, where you have your hazmat suit and all the sort of things to be prepared for moments, or where you're hustled into different places in the building when there are threats and things like that. Do you know during the Obama administration if Tommy Veter would have been allowed to survive or he would have, he would have just been left to, left to fend for himself? I think in the moment, Tommy and I both would not have made it through the nuclear right. attack, which is yeah. sad because Tommy That's, is a friend and also a good contributor to the world dialogue. So there 100%. you go. You always need in the post-apocalyptic landscape, you always need a guy named Tommy to help you out because that's like an important <laughs> part of the of the next of the next like surviving generation. Is, you it is a it. solid name, a solid name. Yeah. So, okay. So here's my, here are my, my things. I want to be serious with you about, about this yeah. because again, we'll talk about your career in a minute, but- you know, because of your time at the State Department and because of your time at the, as the White House Press Secretary, where you get foreign policy questions, one of the yeah. things I, I want to—I hate to break it to you—your new job at MSNBC, it's not going to be like a giant surfeit of, of foreign policy, serious foreign policy questions. So, just to remind you of what it would have been like if you were around, if you were still White House Press Secretary this week, I wanted to ask you a couple of things about foreign policy mm-hmm. because we started the week with with Georgia Maloney in in Italy. Yeah. You know, and be afraid, be very afraid. Well, that's the thing. So let me just play this. Here's she back in August when the elections were upcoming. She, you know, was getting all this stuff about how she was a threat to democracy and she was going to, she was neo-fascist and she liked Mussolini and stuff. And she went on TV and spoke in English to try to reassure people about the fact that she wasn't those things. So I want to play that. Good morning, everyone. I am Giorgia Meloni. I am 45 years old and I am the president of Fratelli d'Italia, the political party of Italian conservatives. Four days I uh, have been reading articles in the international press in which I am described as a danger to democracy. I have been reading that the win of Fratelli d'Italia would mean a disaster, leading to an authoritarian turn, Italy's departure from the euro and other nonsense of this sort. None of this is true. We are loyal, honest and determined people and we are ready to launch a new season of stability, freedom, and prosperity for Italy, whether the left likes it or not. The end of that bite is the thing I like, which is the best. We are loyal, honest, determined people, ready to launch a new season of stability, freedom, and prosperity for Italy, whether the left likes it or not. (laughs) Right. That last part was like, you thought I was normal, and I am not. So what are we supposed to think about her? Like, honestly, just tell me. I mean, look, we're going to have to watch, obviously, but if you look at her actions and kind of what she's advocated for or supported, that's the most telling. I mean, she supported a blockade to prevent migrants from coming from Africa, right? Right. Sounds like something that could have happened here at some point in time, just to Mm. say, if that was a possibility. Not that long ago. 
Not that long ago. Not that long ago. We're old enough to remember, you know, a lot of her allies, people who helped her get elected, have ties to Putin, right? She's come out this past week and said she supports Ukraine. But I think what everybody's a little wary about for good reason is what she's going to do next, right? right? She clearly had to kind of calm the waters. You know, that's something we've heard leaders around the world who have concerning tendencies. They take that tactic to give speeches that feel stabilizing at times. Trump would do that from time to time. Mm. You know, I remember when he'd give State of the Union addresses and people would be like, that speech, it was he was presidential or whatever, right? But then it's about what actions people take. So I don't know, watching her, here's the piece I would watch. One of the challenges right now is whether European countries stay together as it relates right. to Ukraine, right? Yep. Yep. And that is probably the issue that is going to have the biggest impact globally. You know, I guess it's unpredictable what, what may happen in the future. But she says she's supportive of Ukraine, but Italy has, we have to see what they do by action. They have contributed defense support. They have been more than just verbally supportive. If they break off, are there other countries that will break off? How do we keep Europe together? That's pretty pivotal through the winter period. And I think that's the place I would watch. Uh, obviously, there are all sorts of other tendencies we can watch in terms of how she rules and governs in her country, if she's xenophobic or what else you know, she transpires under her leadership. But in terms of global impact, what she does or doesn't do for Ukraine would be, I think, the most interesting story to me. It's super interesting. And you, know, uh, you start from a point where you say someone who's praised Mussolini in the past is probably not. It's like, you want to look at least a little bit askance at them because what leader of a serious country in 2022 would sort of speak positively about someone who's on the wrong side, not an allied part of the allied powers, part of the Axis powers. Oh, wait, Donald Trump, who wanted his generals to act more like Hitler's generals, uh, according to yeah. a number of recent books, other than, other than Donald Trump, who would say, Things like, oh, Victor Orban. Anyway, there's a lot of, uh, yeah. there's a, we had a problem here, you know, with this, with this, 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 this nationalist point. fascist thing all over the world, right? Yeah, th that's kind of the point is that the nationalist fascist verbiage, tendencies, friendliness, whatever you want to call it, yeah. is not isolated to one place and it opens the door for others to follow. And that is something that should be of, of significant concern. So here's a story right down the middle of the plate for you again in the foreign policy realm, which is the, these. This is so the, fun. Where's Matt yeah. Lee when we want him? <laughs> he knows more than both of us. So what's going on in Iran, you know, with the, yeah. with the women of Iran who are engaged in, as we periodically see in these countries that we have a lot of issues with, suddenly these popular uprisings happen. You know, just on, on Good Morning America last week, Masa Alinejad, the journalist, cut her hair on GMA in solidarity yeah. with, these, with these running women. I want to play that. Let's take a listen to what she has to say here. They're cutting their hair. Why? Because this is a way of showing to the rest of the world, which Iranian ordinary women started that. And I want to show you why they're doing this. They're cutting their hair like this in public to tell the world that Mahsa got killed for a bit of hair, for a little bit of hair, hair was shown, was visible. Now Iranian women are angry and telling the rest of the world that we're not again, even fighting against compulsory hijab. We want an end for gender apartheid regime. Forgive my anger. This is the anger of Iranian women who have been ignored for years and years. I often filter basically the entire world through, uh, through the West Wing, but 
You know, and like C.J. Craig, it's like they're killing the women, you know, in Kumar, the made up country that is basically Iran in that show. Basically, foreign policy is often like old white guys saying stuff about stuff that they don't really have that much really emotional or visceral connection Mm -hmm. to. And one of the things that was great about when you were the State Department spokesperson was to see when these issues would arise, you had a different kind of a connection to them. Like as you watch what's happening in Iran now with these women, what do you think? I mean, I think, one, Iranian women have been front and center in protests for many years. I mean, long before this one, right? Yeah, sure. um, and I, I think it's it's hard to even understand as, a, as, I mean, I grew up, you know, in the United States, in the East Coast, the level of bravery and courage it requires to do what a lot of these women are doing. Many of them are very young. They have a sense to some degree of what's at risk. They've also seen what happened in in the last couple of weeks that prompted all these protests. So I think it's it sounds cliche to say it's incredibly inspiring. It is. It's also just a reminder of the power of activism in the world. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen here in Iran, right? I mean, there have been protests over the course of the last several decades, you know, if you go back to 2009, you go back to 2019, there were protests that obviously didn't end in a massive change. But what they're asking for, many of them, is regime change. And what is interesting is that at the same time as these women are in the streets, pulling off head covers, cutting their hair, you know, there are questions about the health of the supreme leader, right, who is the most powerful person in Iran, hands down. He's in his 80s. We don't really know. I mean, Western sources don't know fully well what his health is, but there's been rumors for years. But it is this exciting moment, which I can say from having worked in the State Department and, and served there, having worked in multiple White Houses, and now three weeks in, sitting in the offices of a news organization where you're watching, is this a moment of change, right? And is it led by these young women? What an incredibly courageous story and thing to watch, to lift up, to cover. What is super interesting to me also is that, you know, in Iran, they've cut off access. This is something they've done in protests. Every time there's a big protest, they cut off access to the Internet. But because of the power of social media and what these women are sharing, people outside of Iran are amplifying and telling their stories of these women in Iran, which is so cool, too. Right. And you think of all the evils of social media and there are plenty. Mm. But this is one of those moments where you think without that we wouldn't know their stories. And that is also a component of this that is really, you know, amazing to me. It's such a crazy moment though. And I, again, I'm foreign policy, as you know, is not my central bailiwick, but you know, every time Come on over, I'll make you really into it. It's very exciting. <laughs> I didn't say it's I was just like into- politics and for other countries. It's the same I, thing. Totally. I didn't say I wasn't into it. I just want to acknowledge that it's not like my area of expertise, but yes, you think about this debate that went on for a long time, it still goes on around Saudi Arabia and like, you know, are there the modernizers are fighting with the old guard and, you know, should yeah. we, even if it's, you know, uh, bin Salam and your mom bin Salam and he's like, well, you know, he's a modernizer and, you know, he may be an autocrat. He may be a thug. He may be a plutocrat. He may be a kleptocrat, but you know, he's better than some of these other old guys who are there who are even worse. And, and you get in that discussion. And then in this moment, at this moment, this guy, I think about Iran. We've been talking about about Iran, about the reformist elements in Iran, finally yeah. having a moment breaking through for like basically my entire adult life. Um, yeah. and I'm and I'm older than you. You know, at the same time this is all happening, Christian Amanpour gets on TV and goes, Yeah, uh, I normally do the first interview with an Iranian president during UN week. And I showed up for this one and they t- you know, walked out and told me I had to put a headscarf on. And I was like, 
this is I'm paraphrasing my friend Chris John was like, fuck you. Um, we don't have that law in this country. <laughs> yeah. And you're not, and you're not, not a direct quote, but yes. Yeah. And you're not, and yeah. you're not, and you're also not gonna, not gonna blindside me that way on an interview on the terms of an interview, but they're doing that. She's like one of the most prominent female journalists in the world, you know, easily by every metric. And you roll into UN week in, against the backdrop of this protest. That to me, beyond the outrageousness of what it was to, to her, is just like a big fat middle finger to everybody who's kind of like, yeah, I think the women, these women and their protests are inspiring. Fuck you. We're going to fuck with Christian Amanpour now on the world stage at the UNGA. Like, I don't know. Like, that's a pretty recalcitrant regime. Well, look, I mean, I think they clearly knew that any journalist, including ones who are as like well-respected as Christian Amanpour, still want an interview with the president. And they made a bet that maybe they could get her to wear a headscarf, right? But she doesn't want to be used as a tool of propaganda, which is also smart. And I think what's changed a bit over the past, I don't know, five years or more, is that the West, and I mean that in a range of ways, I mean, journalists, government, is punching back a bit more on the propaganda, right? We've learned so much about the power of propaganda. There's many ways it's used. I mean, that is one way, right? If they have the president of Iran with a very prominent, well-known Western journalist, and, and they've told her she has to cover up and she does, sure, they would use that as propaganda, right? right. Of course they would. But the punching back, I think, has been a very effective, in my, in my experience, change, but a good one. From the commanding heights of foreign policy, we come to the less exalted. I, again, I'm thinking of things. What would be happening to Jen if she were still a White House press secretary? Um, oh, God. This week? The, well, here's <laughs> just this. This is a small little thing. Again, like the FEMA director, yeah. this, is the, this is the kind of thing that happens in the White House. At some yeah. point, some team that's won a championship, all of them, they all roll into the White House and Joe Biden or whoever the president is gets to talk to them. So yeah. I'm going to play two things mm -hmm. in a row here that relate to the mm -hmm. same topic. The Atlanta Braves, last year's World Series yep. winner, showed up at the White House this week. Uh, here's Joe Biden meeting them, having this little moment with the Braves, making them feel good. It was a rough start. Played Landry's all-star break, not one day of a winning record, given a 0.4% chance of winning on CNN. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> I, I listen to all the percentages of CNN. You know. My batting average isn't nearly as good. Anyway, but the franchise never quit, never gave in. So the Braves got the best of Joe Biden there. Sometimes Joe Biden's humor, not quite that good. That was actually a genuinely good joke. I'm all, I thought that was fantastic, right? So yeah. then your successor, Corrine Jean-Pierre, has to, on the same day, get asked about this in a slightly different context in the White House briefing room. And this is what took place. The president hosting the Atlanta Braves today, wondering if you or the president has any thoughts about some of the controversial, mm -hmm. about the team name, the Braves name, the so-called tomahawk shop, any thoughts on, on So, that? look, we, we believe that it's important um, to have this conversation. Uh, you know, and, uh, and Native American and indigenous voices, uh, they should be at the center of this conversation. Uh, that is something that the president believes, that's something that this administration believes, and he has consistently emphasized that all people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. You hear that often uh, from this president. The same is true here, and we should listen to Native American and indigenous people who are the most impacted uh, by this. No, I'm not doing this to sandbag KGP, but you know, the Native American and indigenous voices are not at the center of this conversation. And if we listen to them, we know exactly what would happen. The president would come out and say to the Atlanta Braves ownership, guys, like the tomahawk chop thing is incredibly racist and has to stop. 
Like, how do you deal with that when you're press secretary, when you have that conflict? I mean, I know she can't say that. That's why I'm not sandbagging her. I guess she's dealing with the difficult thing. The uh, totally legitimate and also totally woke question comes in the room while your boss is just trying to like get, do a nice thing for the World Series champions. How does that feel when you're a press secretary? And how do you cope with the reality I just laid out, which is that if you were telling the truth, you would say something really different than what she just said? Well, look, I mean, when you're the White House press secretary, whether it was when I was or Karine, KJP, as you call her, or a lot of people call her, I mean, your job is to speak on behalf of the president, right? It's not to share your point of view. It's not to say what you'd say at a cocktail party or at a bar. It's not to say what you'd say. You know what I mean? That's that's true. Yeah. It is also to consider, and this is what I heard in that answer, and I've not talked to her about this specifically, but where you want to make news on a given day. And that may sound a little crass, but... I think, you know, they didn't want to make news that they were going to weigh in on what the Braves should be called or shouldn't be called or what should happen or shouldn't happen. I think what she tried to do there is touch on how they don't fully approve of it, right, to give that wink, but not make it that the headline out of that day was White House weighs in on, you know, what a sports team is doing. Now, granted, there's a lot of people who feel like that's not enough, that's not good enough, and you do have yeah. to deal with that on, on yeah. a regular basis. Yeah, that's I mean, I believe mean. me. You know, like when I was there, people would, not people, I always hate it when people say that, like generically, it's like, who are the people? But, you um, sound like Trump when you say that. You know, many people are saying, <laughs> many, like, people, many, many people, many people are saying. Are saying yeah. It's like, who are the people? Are they senators? Are they people in the street? What? Are, who right. are they? Same thing. You know, there was a, yeah, there was a, <laughs> but I, there was a little bit of, yeah, same, same, same thing. Random person in the street. There was a little bit of frustration, I would say, among some in the Democratic Party that we didn't come out harder and talk more about Trump early on. And we made a decision not right. to do that. We said very little around impeachment. We said very little about crazy things Trump was saying. We made a strategic decision not to do that. It doesn't mean it's easy every day because sometimes you want to be like, he is an effing lunatic. But like, if you say that from the White House podium, you overlay everything else you're trying to communicate about that day. And that's that's the tricky part of that job. One of the many, I would it's say. A, but. It's, a, it's such an interesting thing to think about. You know, I, I keep thinking about Obama in this context where the Obama of 2009, 2010 and the campaign, frankly, in 2008 and how he was so careful about anything that touched on race. Uh, mm -hmm. And then by the end, you know, you get him with Trayvon speaking really much more like in the way that a lot of black Americans wanted him to speak all along. That's just the evolution is interesting the evolution of a presidency where you go from in a lot of cases, and I'm not saying this is what's happening here, but you go from, you know, we have to have the native American and indigenous voices at the center of the debate versus what you might say in your second term when you might be more, as a president and the spokesperson for the president, you might be willing to be more forthright about those things. And I'm not saying, I'm obviously not saying Korean is lying in some way. I'm just saying like, that's, that's press secretary talk to like, we don't want to make news versus what, you know, a Joe Biden in a second term or a Barack Obama in a second term might've said, you know, or be, be more willing to kind of go out a little bit more on a limb. It's just that, that evolution is fascinating to watch always. Well, that's, I agree and disagree with that. I mean, okay. I think one, it is easier for a spokesperson to answer within the confines, no matter who the president is, of what the president and the writ large building wants you to say. Right. It is harder when a president gets asked directly for good reason, right? Because it's harder to be like, well, you know, indigenous people should have their voices. That doesn't sound natural. And, yeah. you know, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, neither of them want to sound unnatural or like they're avoiding the question. If Joe Biden was asked that question, I don't think that's what he would have said, would be my gut, right? That's his prerogative. He's the president. Mm 
I will say about Barack Obama, not to take us in like a different tangent, but I did work for him for 10 years, is I think what he was constantly mindful of is that as the first black president, he also had to invite people in to be a part of the conversation and not tell people what they had to think. And I saw that with him a lot in that he had moments of emotional, heartfelt, gut-wrenching reaction, like the one you mentioned, right? But I worked with him for him up until the end when there were many shootings and we tried a lot of different things. And he often was one very mindful of the fact that he couldn't, you know, everybody always called for him to have a national conversation on race. And he would Mm -hmm. always say to us, like, what does that mean? You know, like, what is that? Like, how does how does that solve it? It's actually people who need to be talking to each other. And he always felt like he wanted to offer a bridge for white Americans who had obvious or more under the radar biases, racist tendencies to be a part of the conversation. And so even till the end, that's what I experienced with him, which is always a tricky, a tricky thing to balance. All right. We're going to take a quick break right now. Uh, We'll be back shortly with more of the one and only Jen Psaki here on Hell and High Water. We are back with Jen Psaki on Hell and High Water. You just said you worked for Barack Obama for 10 years. So let's, yeah. uh, I want to hear, hear, hear a little bit of what something you had to say, which I thought was hilarious when you said it at the time, hilarious and accurate. You were at the Aspen Ideas Festival back after the election in 2012. And you were oh, asked, boy. you were asked, you <laughs> were really asked, like I, the way back machine. Yeah. This is well. if I could, if I could have gone further back to your days with Tom Vilsack, I would have found some, I would have found some yeah. TV from, from that too. Good times. It's hard. It's too. hard. It's hard to find that audio without a lot of excavational firepower. But here you're at the ideals festival and Dickerson, I think John Dickerson is asking you like, what's the, what was the difference between the 08 campaign and the 2012 campaign? And this is what you said. The first campaign there was this amazing wave of excitement and enthusiasm. And and many people were projecting what they wanted then candidate Senator Obama to be. A very, I'll call him a very, very senior administration official, um, said to me, which I think this is a very good analogy for it, that the first campaign was like being in a relationship where everything's gleeful and you're happy and you don't see any wrong in the other person. And, you know, you just kind of ride the wave of happiness. And the second campaign was like, after you've been married for a few years, you've got a couple <laughs> kids, uh, maybe you've had some squabbles, some you know, financial disputes, but at the end of the day, you, know, you love the person that much more. There's a lot of truth in that. You know, the campaigns were so different. And, mm-hmm. and you'd done other stuff in politics before, right? You'd worked for, for Rahm Emanuel, you worked for John Kerry. I mean, it really, the, the first Obama campaign was really just like, it's like getting struck by lightning. You can be on winning campaigns and on many people are on winning and losing campaigns. But that moment in that campaign was so different that for a lot of people, you know, that 2012 campaign was obviously very satisfying because you want to get reelected. But it's like there was a little wistful quality to it. And certainly you had to throw a lot more very hard punches in that campaign and get down in yeah. the mud, get down in the mud in the way that. Senator Obama said he never would when he ran in 2008. All of a sudden, in 2012, it's like, yeah, Mitt Romney killed the guy. You know, that's yeah. all. Yeah, he, yeah that's why he's, he's got, got his do- dog on his car yeah. and he's got a million houses. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> so, right, I don't know, right, that was right. McCain. Sorry. He's yeah, got, whatever, yeah, it's all the exactly. Same. He's got too yeah. much money. Yeah. yeah. To your point, I've done 
presidential campaigns when you're running for the first time and you lose, when you run for the first time you win, when you run for re-election, they're all a little different. You know, but it's always about how you make people feel, right? It's never about, I mean, Campy, you know this, you've covered so many of them. Campaigns are not about who has the better white paper, policy paper, right? It's not a comparison of that. It is about what you bring about, the, the activism, the excitement, the energy, or the hatred. It's both for the other side that you bring about in the American public. And, you know, 2008, I uh, had been working at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee for Rahm Emanuel. I met my husband. Mm -hmm. I didn't know he was my husband going to be my husband, but we were dating for a minute before I went on the Obama campaign. And I just had a gut about Obama. I'd seen the 2004 speech just like everybody. And I actually turned down a job with Hillary Clinton and her campaign not because I didn't like her. I just had a, a gut about him. Like roll um, the dice. You're rolling the dice. Roll the dice. My, my husband, who was then my boyfriend, yeah. was like, oh, you'll be back in a few months and whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah. obviously that's not what happened. He was a Biden supporter actually in 2008, which I've told the president many times. He's like one so, of the seven. One of the seven. He was one of the one of the one, <laughs> one of the seven one of the seven George. Yeah, one of the seven. I, I actually told Biden that once in a photo line, and my husband was with me, and he was like, "Let's talk after." <laughs> it's very funny. It's very to invite him. So that campaign was, you know, you you were, you know, obviously David Pluff was the campaign manager. There was no tolerance of bullshit, no tolerance of backstabbing. It did feel in the campaign like you were a part of something that was lifting you up and that was hopeful and good and better. And everybody likes to characterize us all as we were all like 18 and a half on that campaign. Actually, most of us had done a lot of campaigns and yeah. uh, before that. And it was just a moment that was unique to be a part of. I also think we were so the underdog for so much of that campaign um, right. that you get into this foxhole mentality with each other, right? Where you feel like you are overcoming skepticism. And I don't even think on election day, you know, I was in Chicago, of course, with then Senator Obama. Of course, it was like unseasonably warm. And I remember being in the press file and I was like so tired. I was wearing some crazy, you know, you get like on campaigns, you, you get super sisters. And I wore these cowboy boots for like six months oh, with whatever. I remember, I yeah. remember those. I remember those boots. Oh, yeah, my God. I got them in Texas. I wore them for yeah. six months. I don't know if yeah. I've worn them since then, but they helped elect Barack Obama in some way. And I had I had required reporters telling me we won for me to believe it because you right. were just like on this, you know. And 2012, I, I, it was different because you are judged, as I was kind of talking about in that clip, by what you did or didn't accomplish. And again, how people feel about whether you delivered on your promises and whether you are making their lives better. And ultimately, yes, there were harder punches against Mitt Romney in that campaign, for sure, right. than we did in the prior election or the prior presidential. But it was also the basic case was, give me more time. I'm going to keep making your life right. better. Right. I just need a little bit more time. That was the overarching message of that campaign was like, keep betting on me, guys. Keep betting on me. I care about you. I'm the one who's going to make your life better, which was the positive. But yeah, it was it was a grind. I mean, I remember election night just thinking, man, I'm tired in a different way, right? <laughs> right? Than yeah, I was yes. in 2008. Well, more, more soul destroying in a lot of ways. I mean, you didn't have I mean, yeah. a closer election and you know, all that stuff. I just think about like, I don't know, you won't probably remember this, but like, I was like on that plane with you guys for like the last 72 hours. And so that included yeah. that period when his grandmother died. 
Uh, and he gave that speech. To Hawaii. And, and, yeah. Yes. Oh, he, in Virginia. But, in Virginia. Yeah, no, it was the speech we gave was in North Carolina. The Virginia speech oh, was that North huge one. It was North Carolina. We yeah. gave that speech in the rain and he was crying yeah. in the rain. I was yeah. like, I still, it was like a movie. I was writing about like every event for the web at, at, mm-hmm. just because I wanted to chronicle those 72 hours. And there was that, that Manassas rally was insane. And it was like, all of it was just felt like so otherworldly in its kind of cinematic quality, partly because you knew he was going to win. And that actually... In, in a way, it didn't, it didn't reduce the drama of it. It made you be more invested in it because it was like yeah. this big giant step America was about to take forward. And there wasn't the suspense of might he lose. It was like you knew he was going to win. And so now all those other things kind of came to the fore. And and I think that's part of what fueled all of that frustration and disappointment with how hard it turned out to be to govern, you know, how hard it was in those first four years. And and yeah. part of the and, and then the campaign, which had this kind of, you know, very negative cast to it. And the reason I'm asking the question is this, you know, Cody Keenan's book's coming out, uh, yeah. his book Grace, right? Which is about this extraordinary period in 2015, 2015, right? Yeah. 2015, yes, 2015. When the ACA gets upheld in the Supreme Court, gay marriage gets upheld, there's the Dylan Roof shooting in South Carolina, and he goes down yep. and sings Amazing Grace, and leads them singing Amazing Grace. It's incredible, like 10 days, I guess. 10 days, I think, yeah. the life of the presidency, right? Yes. I haven't read the book yet. I'm sure it's going to be great. Cody's a great writer. I've read it. It's great. Yeah. Is it great? It's great, right? It's got to be great. But part of why it's great, and this is what I want to ask you, is in some ways it feels like that those 10 days were when all of the frustrated liberals and Obama fans who had felt like it was it was never quite what they imagined it was going to be when they first got behind him, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is the moment. This is the payoff, right? And I wonder whether you felt like that in that moment and when you were like most proud of him as president. Yeah, it, it is amazing. I mean, because Cody has written this book, as you mentioned, but yeah. of all the years and days that I spent working for him, that period of time, and actually specifically the day where he sang Amazing Grace, because that was also the day, as you noted, Cody talks about in the book, that gay marriage was made the law of the land by the Supreme Court. I was also, which Cody captures in the book a lot, extremely pregnant during this period of time. I was like <laughs> eight and a half months pregnant. I, I've like teased Cody that like he'll mention me as like a moment and he'll be like and she was eating a cheeseburger i'm like is that is that a necessary part of it but um so that day is the day that i remember you know working in a white house is such a grind right it is a grind no matter what your job is and it's an honor but it is exhausting it is heartbreaking you feel beaten down sometimes you feel disappointed sometimes by the people you work for whether it's the president or other people high up and that day, I remember thinking when I was like crying the whole day, I think because I was eight and a half months pregnant, but also just it was like an emotional day. Wow, I feel honored to be here and to be a part of this. And I did not go on that trip, but I remember walking through, and you've been in this area, the area of upper press, which is mm. where the press secretary's office is. And I was a communications director, and my office was right next door. And just kind of catching out of the corner of my eye, then President Obama speaking and then starting to sing and it's a moment i knew that i would remember forever because it really encapsulated who he is and who he was which was trying to find a way to meet the the pain just a moment that didn't have real words and he was very stressed out and cody talks about this in this in this book but i remember this distinctly about giving that speech he did not want to go give that speech right he felt like there was nothing more to say and so him singing was kind of him trying to capture the feelings in that room. And what people don't always understand about him is that he 
obviously is a great speaker, but he's a deeply feeling person. He just doesn't always emote it in the same way. Whereas Joe Biden will like cry with you when your dog dies, right, you know? Right, so right. they're they're different that way. But that book, it was cool for me to read because it is Cody's perspective, right? So a lot right. of those things I didn't live or I lived them from a different view, but it does give you an understanding of what it's like to work there. Which I is think cool. the, breaking, the breaking news here is, is that Jen is claiming that Barack Obama is, not that he doesn't have some Vulcan blood, but that he's less Vulcan than we thought he was. It's like, no, he's <laughs> no really, he's not 47% Vulcan. He's 41% Vulcan. I swear to God, he's yeah. more human than you, I, than you could ever yeah, imagine. Yeah. Actual emotions think, occasionally—it's crazy. It's amazing. What I actually think, what people misunderstand about him is actually that he's an introvert. That's yes. my view. That's that a good theory. He, which means you gain energy from being alone, not from people. And people always think he gains energy from being 100%. with people because he's a public speaker. But that's hundred yeah. percent. I, I don't Vulcan, non-Vulcan, but that's my takeaway. I 100% agree with that. He's got that writer's, that solitary writer's kind of ruminative yeah. kind of quality. Whether it's writing or whether it's watching ESPN, he's happy to be alone. He's like, you know, there's yes. no doubt about with that, his, right? With his seven almonds or whatever it may be. Oh, yeah. that's the crazy, that's the crazy <laughs> shit about that guy. That's the part that makes him not a Vulcan, but like some other kind of freak. That, you were like, always starving seven, traveling with him because he's such a healthy a eater. Day. Jesus. Yeah, I was like, I'm so hungry and I'm 5'3", but I need more food. Than <laughs> I need more than those seven almonds, Mr. President. Please <laughs> yeah. go have another cheeseburger so that Cody yeah. will be able to write about it later in the book. Exactly. You go off to the State Department to become spokeswoman there. We mentioned it before. And yeah. there's many things we could say and we don't have the time, but I do want to ask you about the Russia thing, right? Because one mm-hmm. thing that happened was you became a target of mockery, uh, yep. abuse, um, yep. misogyny. Sexism. Uh, ugly, yeah. uh, ugly, u- all kinds of ugly shit. And, and yeah. really, if you were paying attention, which I think most people weren't because it was still yeah, 2014, no. we weren't like, oh, Russia's going to come and mess with our business right. in 2016. If you were paying attention, there was a lot of a window into the Russian propaganda machine that you could see. I'm going to play two things just to remind you of this. These are both in 2014. And these are both things that, that these are RT things, which I normally yeah. wouldn't play except to illustrate the point. My buddies at RT, yeah. This is, a, <laughs> this is a straight thing where you make a very, what I will say in advance, is a very small, the kind of error in saying something that any normal person would do. And you correct it immediately. And yet this mm-hmm. becomes a huge thing for RT. This is you yeah. talking about how natural gas flows in and out of Russia. Here it is. You know there are there are there are flows of gas of natural gas I should say that go through uh, from Western Europe through Ukraine to Russia and we oh, I'm sorry the other way from Russia through Ukraine to Western Europe and we want some of uh, that natural gas to be available to go back into Ukraine. This like becomes a huge example for the Russians of the fact that you're an idiot like that you just don't, yeah. absolutely don't know anything about the world you like you have no understanding about how. The energy markets work, and they go after it for months and months and months. The second one I'll play very quickly is just RT puts this up in a list of like here are Jen Psaki's worst mistakes, and they make these little viral memes. And here is you doing something that any normal person would do when asked a question by a propaganda outfit like RT at the State Department, saying, you know, well, saying this. But what is the response? I think we're what ready to response? move on to it. But what is the response? I think we're ready to move on to it. But what is the response? I think we're ready to move on to it. But what is the response? I think we're ready to move on to it. But what is the response? I think we're ready to move on to another topic also. Like I was ready before that, before the person even asked the question, but that's an endless loop. They would put that out and be like, there she is making fun of the fact that you always shut down their reporter, which I get, I would have banned yeah. him from the press. I would have banned him from the press room, but yeah. talk about what it was like to be a target. Not only what it was like to be who you were, 
being attacked in the way you were being attacked, but the ways in which it, it, it did foreshadow and presage a bunch of stuff that we now know a lot more about in terms of how the Russian propaganda machinery works. Yeah. I mean, look, on a personal level, it sucked. It, it, it hit at my self-confidence. I A lot of it was misogynist and sexist, and they talked about what I wore, how I looked, all these sorts of things. But what they were, the core of their message was, was that I had no idea what I was talking about and that I was dumb. Now, when this was all happening to me, I really didn't know what to do because I was also new to the State Department. I didn't come from a foreign policy background. I felt like I really had to overcome skepticism within the building, understandably, about whether or not I could do this job. And so they were, and this is what we saw play out many times later, hitting at something I was already sensitive about, right? Right. Uh, Which was whether or not I was up for this job. And my concern that I didn't know that people believed I could do the job. So they hit at something that was already a core sensitivity. Now, why they did this, so in the time, and I remember very distinctly being on a trip with Secretary Kerry in Europe, and I got an inquiry from an ABC reporter, and this tells you how much times have changed with kind of how reporters in the United States now cover Russian propaganda. And the inquiry was something about how Russia was really making me an issue in the relationship and things that I had stated that were inaccurate, and what did I have to say about that? Meaning it wasn't acknowledging or stating that they were a propaganda outlet that was run by the Kremlin or questioning why they would be doing that. And in that moment, I remember kind of like driving through these windy hills of Europe thinking like, you never want to be the story. And, you know, what should I do? And it really actually took, and this is where you know, a couple of State Department reporters at the time had been Moscow bureau chiefs, Michael Gordon being one of them, saying to me, look, it's a badge of honor (laughs) that they're going after you, you know, Um, because they want to cut down your credibility because what you're saying is they have illegally invaded Ukraine, which they have. And now let's fast forward to many years later. But that experience to me now, like looking back, it really foretold that their effort to use propaganda and obviously a much more expansive, much more damaging way than just going after me personally. And they had gone after other people, obviously more prominent than me, including Hillary Clinton and Mike McFall and stuff, but what they did in 2016, right? Yeah. And knowing what we know now about 2016 and what I did not know at the moment and Ben Rhodes did not know and Josh Ernest did not know was that the use of social media and the use of all of these tools to confuse people, to really put into question what the truth was and to poke at divisions or insecurities that people already had, that is their tactic, right? That is their playbook. That is what they did in 2016, which is different, and I was obviously in the government at the time, than what we thought was gonna happen. So it was a preview on a very, you know, in a way that not a lot of people are paying attention to, to what they would go on to do at a much greater, much more impactful and damaging scale just a few years later. Well, and also, interestingly, which we could go down a long digressive path about this, also a preview of the Trump years because you know yes. the, the notion of, of preying on someone's weakness and insecurity and pounding it over and over and again, and that's a Trump characteristic that either he stole from Putin or Putin stole from him or they decided to work yes. on together as like a dynamic duo. And then the, the propaganda stuff, nothing encapsulates it better than Steve Bannon's famous like, well, how do we win? We flood the zone with shit. 
That's yeah. like, that's the propaganda. That's the Russian propaganda model. Just, you know, flood the vote zone with so much shit that no one knows what's real anymore. And you suddenly are able to get away with all kinds of stuff. But here's yeah. my question to you in the moment now. Putin's like lost the plot, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, he, the guy controls the media in, in Russia, right? Yes. And, and he seems to be not just losing the war in Ukraine, which he is, but also yeah. losing the ability to like, the one thing you can never fault Vladimir Putin for, given that his control and his willingness to do anything and be ruthless, he always like, I can control the narrative. I'll drive the narrative. And now it's like, he's lost the thread. Totally. I mean, and, and to your point, I mean, who knows their polls, but truth, I mean, 80 to 90% of people in Russia have historically supported his big moves, whatever his big moves are, right? Including the last invasion or the earlier invasion of Ukraine. So yes, he is failing militarily. He's trying to do politically or through PR purposes or whatever, what he can't do militarily. And he's having trouble with that too. And that is pretty amazing given they control the media there. Yeah. Uh, they have cracked down on any freedom of press or media. And he is still having a hard time with cracks around him, like pretty close to his circle and certainly with protests in Russia. I mean, the reason he did this entire referendum, right, which right. is, you know, taking place last week is because he needed to justify the continued war. He can say to the people, it's not about the United States or Western Europe. We're all going to say it's sham, whatever. He doesn't care about that. It's about telling the people of Russia, we have to keep fighting because these are our people. These are Russians. It doesn't matter that he like took these areas completely under, you know, that were already, that were disputed. But it is such an interesting part of this that he is in a place right now where he is no longer able to control, no longer able to command support from his own people, even with all of the tools he has at his disposal. He's no longer able to control the stuff that he has absolute control over, which is really wild. Yeah. I want to hit one thing of your time as press secretary. It was such a like a, a moment, I thought, explicit, but still very deftly executed uh, moment in your first press briefing where you were kind of like putting a very big peg in the in the dirt and sort of saying, okay, this is a moment. This is a turning point. It's going to be different now. I want to play it. And there's something you say at the end of it. I want to ask you about how well you feel like you you lived up to it. So let's play this little bit from Jen's first day as White House press secretary on January 21st, 2021. I come to this podium having served both in the White House and at the State Department uh, as the spokesperson there. And I traveled the world on trips to promote democracy, uh, where I saw the power of the United States, and of course, the power of this podium, uh, and the power of truth, and the importance of setting an example of engagement and transparency. I have deep respect for the role of a free and independent press in our democracy, and for the role all of you play. If the president were standing here with me today, he would say he works for the American people, uh, I work for him, so I also work for the American people. But his objective and his commitment is to bring transparency and truth back to government, uh, to share the truth even when it's hard to hear. Um, and uh, that's something that I hope to deliver on in this role as well. You learned really well from Barack Obama, famously at the Jefferson Jackson dinner in 2007, where he, he wrote that incredible speech where he trashed Hillary Clinton without ever saying her name. You know, it was a, a whole speech <laughs> built around attacking Clintonism mm -hmm. without ever uttering her name or her husband's name. This is you laying a, a vicious beat down 
on Donald Trump, all of his alleged press secretaries, the way in which business was done for four years from that room, the basic disregard for the truth, dating all the way back to Sean Spicer and Kellyanne in those first few days were making up crowd size and talking about alternative facts. All of that's in there. And yet the word Trump, Spicer, Conway, never uttered, but everyone knew exactly what you were talking about. How much did you time did you put into kind of wordsmithing that thing so you could say very directly, make very yourself very clear without having to do anything too provocative with respect to the outgoing administration? So believe it or not, I was It was off the top really, of my head. I just made that up as no, I was no, 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 no. I no, no, no. I know. I was not thinking about intentionally, and I understand why you heard it that way, trashing my predecessors as much as trying to make a marking point from the presidential level of how we wanted to approach the briefing. Now, I I get that and what have you, but um, I knew going into that briefing that the most important thing I could do was to try to reset, right, the temperature in the room and try to lay out my intentions. Now, it doesn't mean I met that every day, right? I said, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of words. I have no idea how many words I said. And some days you have to correct yourself. Some days you wish you said something differently. You mess up. You're tired and your tone isn't right. All of those things happened. But that was my intention, and that was what the president's intention was, and you know that was important. So I did spend some time writing it. I did send it to a couple people who I trusted because you don't want to sound cheesy or dishonest. You want to sound like this is what I'm I'm trying to do, and you're speaking to the people in the room, but you're also speaking to the public, right? Sure. And that yeah. is an important thing. And what a lot of people I spoke with told me about what to remember. What we also did that day is we did a briefing on the first day, which I don't know right. that that's ever happened before. Yeah, Maybe yeah. it has, but pretty, pretty we did that. Yeah, we did that purposefully because we wanted to set the tone that we're going to do this every day. Now, when we were planning for and plotting about Hillary Clinton coming in, I would have told them you shouldn't do a briefing every day. Probably, like you should change how it goes. But following Trump just required something different in our view. Right. Well, we also had to do a briefing that first day because we just had an insurrection in America. People were still like pretty hungry for news about like no, what was no, going no. on. No, no, no. Of course. Of no, course. I know. I'm just not making a joke. It's just like, you know, no, there are a million ways. That was yeah. the ultimate expression of how different why after Trump is like well, it reached the exaggerated points of what we saw that, in January that's, that year. That's also why we had to meet at the zoo to get on buses to be dropped <laughs> off like blocks from the White House on our first day because of the security and everything. And uh, it was just a different first day than most. So you said this thing a second ago, we were talking about the Russian propaganda and Putin and Putin himself, you know, himself talked about you. So he was, oh, she's very attractive, but she's just kind of confused an awful lot. I mean, literally he went after you, right? And you said that you were kind of reclaimed about it for a little bit was that you were insecure about whether you were up to that job. I I will say to you not to, to be nice, but to tell you the truth, which is that I don't know anybody who, when you took that job, thought you weren't up to it. Frankly, anybody in the press, corps, everybody thought everybody thought you were going to do fine, but you were insecure. Did you feel any of that when you became White House press secretary or were you like, oh, this is a job I know I can do? You know, I think I knew that I could do the job, but I think probably like men too, but like many women, I have had moments of, you know, imposter syndrome at many jobs, right? Where you think- yeah do people think I can really do this job and can I do this job? And it's really the first day or the first couple of days for me. I remember in the press secretary job, maybe the first week, Brian Deese and I were waiting to go out to do the briefing. And I kind of turned to him and was like, should we tell Larry and Gibbs we're doing this? <laughs> right. Cause they had been our bosses early on in the white house. 
I do have moments, I have had moments in my career, even when I know intellectually that I can do it and that I am up to it and I have the experience to do it, where you have your doubts. And part of it is using that as not a weakness, but as a source of motivation and strength. And it makes you work harder and study harder and want to prove people, whoever they may be, that you can do it. That was, I think, has been the case probably nearly any job I've ever had. Okay, this is a good time to take uh, one more and one last quick break, and then we'll be back with even more of the one and only Jennifer Saki right here on Hell and High Water. And we are back for the last part of this podcast, unfortunately, which I would love to go on forever uh, with Jen Saki uh, right here on Hell and High Water. I have one more West Prospector question for you, but I'm going to save it to the end because it'll be okay. this is the ultimate deep tease. It's like, <laughs> I want to get to, I want to get to my last press sector. We'll save it for the end. Cause it's like the cherry on top of the Sunday. Um, oh boy. you now have this gig you have now where you're asked to increasingly talk about domestic politics and MSNBC. You've got a show you're going to do and you're going to be on the air as an analyst. You already are, you know, and we're headed into this crazy midterms this season. Let me play one thing. Here's Jim Jordan going on Fox News in the most predictable way, but just because it's recent where he's going after the Biden agenda, which is at the center of a lot of the discussion in the midterms. Mm -hmm. Let's hear what Jim Jordan has to say. I had a lady at a little town hall I was doing. She was an older lady sitting on the front row. She waited till kind of near the end of the little little town hall meeting we were having. She raised her hand and she said, she looked at me and she literally, Larry, she had, she had tears starting to form in her eyes. She said, I never thought it could get this bad this fast mm, that's and, and that's where americans are how did it how did it go from all the great things we had under the leadership of president trump and your economic policies working with president trump from from that good all the good we had there to where we are now now that you're not in the white house and and you can hear that both obviously with with still loyalty to the president and and still being a, a stalwart democrat but also someone who's got to be like i have to be analytical now about like where we are i got i can't just be spouting partisan talking points all the time mm-hmm. when you hear that like right now where do you feel in your gut we are democrats are a lot more optimistic about the outcome in the in november than than they were six months ago i think that's obviously right but there's this other kind of countervailing thing that people are like you know Republicans are doing a pretty good job all of a sudden kind of trying to drag the topic back to immigration, crime, inflation. Mm-hmm. What's your assessment of where things stand right now in terms of how the country and the key voting blocks see Joe Biden's accomplishments and how that translates into Democrats' prospects in, in November? I mean, I, I think there are some aspects of this midterm election that are similar to what we see historically, right? Which is that the party in power is always under the microscope, whether it's Democrat or Republican. And, you know, there are issues like inflation. Costs are too high. I mean, Joe Biden will say that. Most Democrats will say that, right? right. So, you know, if it's an election about that, I mean, that, that lady at Jim Jordan's town hall in the first row, if that actually happened, and I hate to doubt that it happened, but like, this is the world we're living in. Oh, I think it's almost certainly, I'm almost certainly that's made up. There's no question about it. Right. It's a made so up like, story. But yeah. sh- there may be a person like that they're not voting for Democrats. I'm not super worried about that person. But what's interesting right now is that there are different dynamics, right? Different issues that we're moving in different directions, right? Toward the Republicans or toward the Democrats. But it's not uncommon for it to be a referendum on the party in power. Now, what is different about this year to me, which I would not have predicted four months ago when I was telling all my friends who are Democrats, like, get in your jammies and have a nice bottle of wine for election night because it's going to be a bruiser, right? Right. Is that 
it feels a little bit more like could be like O2 or 98, right? Where it was, there were other dynamics at play, right? Well, 98 was like, you know, the overreach of Republicans as it related to Monica Lewinsky. And O2 was, of course, post 9-11 where President Bush was in power and it wasn't, it didn't become the same type of referendum in large part because of Dobbs and because of abortion and because that has been an issue, which obviously people have endlessly covered and talked about, but yeah. that has energized and engaged Democrats, independents, women, also men, which is interesting in recent polls, right? Mm, yeah. um, in a way that I think people wouldn't have predicted, in a way that we didn't foresee. The numbers that have been interesting to me in, in recent polls have been the percentage of people who are more engaged now than they were six months ago, eight months right. ago, and comparing it to past midterm elections. So that's a long way of saying, I think that Democrats feel far better than they yeah. did a couple of months ago. The dynamics in the Senate, while some races are tightening a great deal, you've seen over the past week or so, including Pennsylvania, Democrats, I still think, have a shot, a real shot at holding the Senate. I think the House is harder because of dynamics that are beyond abortion and inflation and where people are. It's There were seats lost last time and it's such a narrow margin. And because there were enough retirements in places where Democrats were holding onto seats that are probably harder to hold on longer term that they now have to defend. My short version bet right now, although it's always about a moment in time, we have a month, yeah. is that Democrats have a shot at holding the Senate, and it's it's going to be a much harder hill to climb in the House. But what I'm interested to watch and see is what does that energy translate to in terms of turning out Democrats in a way that is beyond what typically happens in midterms, because that is going to put certain seats over the edge or not. We'll do a little quick lightning round here. You don't see like red wave or blue wave. You think that's... No. You end up and if you look back at two, yeah, and if you look back, I mean, different dynamics, obviously, but if you yeah. look back at 02 and 98, and I use those examples because they were midterm years where it didn't swing to the other party, to the party not in power. Right. It wasn't waves, right, right. for the party in power. It was like more of a stasis. Right. So it feels a little bit more like that to me at this moment. There was a one moment where there was an NBC poll that I'll, I'll say is the only one that we've seen so far where suddenly the concerns about the future of American democracy, which are very high on yeah. my mind, um, yeah. but that they suddenly voters seem to really got tuned into that for at least one poll. And it's it's even if it's not the top concern, it's rare yeah. to see it even in the top three concerns. Do you think that like the Trump factor at that level, not his power to endorse bad candidates who made them help to make them nominees that will help Democrats, but that like... Trump, what's the what do you imagine against this legal backdrop that Trump is facing right now? What do you imagine the Trump political factor looks like in races where control is going to be determined? For Democrats or for Republicans? Well, Not that I'm a Republican the, expert, but you know, I've been well, doing they're, this they're opposite while, sides of the same coin. They're opposite sides of the same coin. Do you think it's going to matter a lot, a little case by case? No, I don't think it's going to matter a ton. Um, right. I, I think Democrats who hate Trump already hate Trump. Right. They already think he's guilty and think he's long overdue to be in jail and are frustrated, not all of them, by the pace of action. Now, that that's disconnected a little bit about how the Department of Justice process works and everything. But right. th that's just pure politics and emotion, which is different sometimes than legality and policymaking. Right. Different oftentimes. And on the Republican side, there's no evidence we've seen to date that people who support him care. And so I, I'm just not convinced that it matters politically at this point in time.
you know, I met Joe Biden in 1986. Okay. Yeah. Were, I'm not sure you were even born in 1986. I was um, definitely born. I appreciate yeah, it. I was born barely. shortly before the Iranian revolution, just okay. to, to come back to like an earlier topic. Foreign policy yeah. topic, right. <laughs> so, so I've known him, I've covered him, you know, and the one thing I would never have imagined was that a day would come when, it's, and I would say, well, I thought there was a chance Joe Biden would be president. I thought that was actually going to be my first job. I was going to work on the Joe Biden's 1988 campaign, and then it collapsed mm-hmm. before I had a chance to go work for him. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea that Joe might be president. Yeah, sure. The idea that Joe Biden would be more polarizing and more hated than Barack Obama, the first black president of the United States with the middle name Hussein, mm-hmm. cr- I, like would never conceive that, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think explains the notion that like, you know, last year, Jen, there were people who were like at football games and in public places all over America chanting, fuck Joe Biden. And nobody even mm-hmm. did that to Barack Obama. Like, mm-hmm. like, how does you explain that a guy as middle of the road, ameliorative, not a guy who picks fights naturally, not a guy who's a radical by any means, didn't hang around with Bill Ayers or Jeremiah Wright or any of those, those lefties that destroyed Barack Obama's character. Ha ha ha. But it, like none of that, right? He becomes what he became. How do you explain that? Trump? And the movement of Trump and January 6th and people feeling like that was a movement they wanted to follow. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but that is the intervening event, right? And also, I'm not convinced that the people who were screaming at Joe Biden could pass a test on what Joe Biden's policies are or what he believes, right? I mean, you look at the things that he did, they're widely popular, a lot of them, including with Trump supporters, you know, they just don't connect them to him. So it's more about his prevention of Trump getting a second term, his opposition to Trump. Yeah. Uh, I think it all goes back to Trump. Reflection what do you of, think? Can well, I ask I, you that question? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a reflection of the fact that the polarization. Your, I'll say a thing that's the similar thing to you. I would go more a little poli ish and sort of say that it's a reflection of the profound polarization in the country at this point, where like. If you're wearing the blue jersey, you're going to be cast as the devil. It more reflects how crazy the politics have gotten. I mean, then Trump is part of that, but I don't think actually Trump is the cause of that. I think he's a symptom of it, like the most glaring buffoonish uh, orange yeah, symptom I don't, of it. I don't think he. I don't think he's the cause of it either. I, I right. also think that there were inklings of it. You know, the birther movement, people yeah. certainly screaming at Barack, not in the same online meme way, but certainly screaming at Barack Obama, Tea Party movement. All these things were different origins of it. The last thing you said in that in at the in the that sound we played from your first day, you said uh, that Biden's objective and commitment is to bring transparency and truth back to government to share the truth even when it's hard to hear, and that's something that I hope to deliver in this role as well. If you look back on your time as press secretary, do you feel like when you finished, you're like, yeah, I did that, I made good on that promise? I would say I think I did, and I think there are probably days where I fell short of that. But overall, that was sitting in the back of my mind and on my shoulder, right? And that means acknowledging around issues that were hard to talk about, you know, including the drawdown in Afghanistan, the death of servicemen and women, including immigration, which is obviously an issue that has not yet been solved. And some of that is saying these issues are hard and here are the choices and here's the choice we're facing or this was a horrible day or it was difficult. But also it means not being misleading. You know, that's the other partner of it, right? And there were days certainly where I, not too many, I don't think, where I said something that wasn't inaccurate. And my objective was always to correct that immediately. And I still think that falls into the category. But I don't know how to grade myself. I would just say that I didn't just say that and then like throw away the piece of paper. It did kind of sit on my shoulder as what I felt was 
almost more important in my time as press secretary that I try to achieve that than like whether I could give 19 answers on Venezuela, you know, because of the time we were in in our country. So in the great, in the realm of great surprises in one's life, you know, if you'd asked me when I was a young man, I would have said marijuana will never be legal. Gay marriage will never be legal. <laughs> There'll never be a black president of the United States. Uh, and, oh, uh, can I and, tell and, you one of my least favorite parts of my job was being the spokesperson against the legalization of marijuana. Because right. Well, knows, terrible. It's not something I'm going to die on a hill over, but yeah. Uh, yeah. At unless, all. unless it was a hill covered marijuana. <laughs> no, um, that's okay. Uh, Legalize it. Go for it. So yeah. all of that. So all of those things have surprised me. And then I just said, Joe Biden becoming, you know, becoming the bete noir of the right has also surprised me. When you think of the great surprises in your life, does like the notion that you became known for hashtag Saki bombs, was that like you thought, hey, I'm going to be press secretary and I'm going to become known as combative, fierce, like a viral meme machine on the, and it would be hashtag Saki bombs. Did that, was that on your bingo card when you took the job? No, no. You know, it's funny. I have two, do you have siblings? Because this is only like- Not, not, not have, to my knowledge. Okay. I have two sisters <laughs> yeah. who have Saki bomb sweatshirts, which they wear, they're very supportive. But they wear them like on the phone just to be like ironic right. sisters, right? No, I mean, look, I, I think in a weird way, and I, Mike McCray would say this, although he was not either of these jobs in the era of Twitter. So like this is right. why some of this exists. But being at the State Department and dealing with, we talked a little bit about Russian propaganda. There's propaganda from all sorts of outlets around the world who have state-run media in that room. It made me actually more fierce as a spokesperson because you realize you have to cut off disinformation pretty right. rapidly. Right. So no, you don't do that because you want to like be, a, I don't even know how to become, a, you know, you do that because again, in the moment we're living in yeah. and the moment I came into that job in, you could not, it was like, let's reset the tone. Also, this is not going to be a room for speechifying propaganda. Right. So we're going to cut that off. But yes, now I have family members and, you know, college friends who like gift me mugs with things because they just want to poke at me. So that's where we go. Well, I said before that no one would have doubted your competence to do the, the, the State Department job, no one who knew you. But also, I don't think people would have said, you know, I mean, you had a tart sense of humor sometimes, but it wasn't like she's going to be fierce and she's going to be dropping bombs and she's going to be, you know, she's master of the smackdown is not like what I would have pit, what I would have thought. And yet of all the people you drop sake bombs on, of course, we all know your favorite, the favorite target, or maybe the person who elicited the bombs most was Fox News's own Peter Ducey. So I'd like to listen to a little bit of that, the, the great, a little greatest hits <laughs> compilation of you and Ducey, and then we'll have the last question on the ad and the other side, you can go home. All right. Do you know any examples from his 36 years in the Senate that Joe Biden just hopped on a train and left town to avoid a vote that he knew he was going to lose? Uh, welcome back. Um, <laughs> Most of the criticism is not of leaving Afghanistan. It's the way that he has ordered it to happen by pulling the troops before getting these Americans who are now stranded. First of all, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home, home. John Kerry says that after France was cut out of the nuclear submarine deal and uh, they were upset enough about being left in the dark that they pulled their ambassador, he went to the president uh, and quote, the president literally had not been aware of what had transpired. 
So what else are you guys not telling the president? Of course he was aware of the French being upset. Let me finish. Let me let me let me finish. I know John Kerry quite well. Uh, he of course was aware, the president, of uh, the French being displeased about the deal with the Australians. The Secretary of State a few days ago tweeted, I hashtag stand with Ukraine. Has that ever worked at stopping an authoritarian regime from doing anything? A hashtag? I will have to say that unlike the last administration, we don't think Twitter is the only means of engaging or negotiating or discussing important topics. Thank you, Jen. Sorry to see you go. Are you? <laughs> you could literally play hours of those. Just do see a love. And I, and, you know, I've heard Ducey say, oh, there's no contentiousness between the two of us. So my two-part last question is, how would you describe the relationship between yourself? And I know you're going to be respectful and you're not going to say anything mean, but some of the questions like, so what else are you guys not telling the president? It's just an asshole question. That's just like a douchey way of phrasing. That's like a, why you want to just start, stop beating your wife question. I mean, do you feel like that? I mean, it's, it seemed obvious to me that, that some of your reactions to him were like that he was asking kind of asshole questions. So like, how do you characterize the relationship? And more broadly, you know, your friend Anita Dunn, I know, thinks that like Fox News is like a pestilential menace destroying our democracy. I sometimes agree with that often. It's certainly in prime time, I do. Um, so how do you how do you think about the, beyond the specific of Ducey, the broader question of like the problem of Fox News and you were just talking about disinformation. They're pretty big purveyor of it. So just talk about those few things and then you can go home. Yeah. As I used to say in the briefing room, there's a lot to unpack there. Yes, but there is. I will yeah. say, there's a compound, Kamala Harris um, the other day accused me of asking her a compound question. She's like, that's a compound yeah. question, John. I'm like, yes, yeah, well, yeah. you know, I'm sorry. It's a great, it's a super, I mean, meaning we could talk about this for an hour. Um, I know. I agree. Fox shares disinformation. They share inaccurate information. And that is a huge problem. Now, that also happens on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, all sorts of platforms out there where disinformation is shared. What the challenge is, I think, for Democrats or just people in general is that a lot of people watch Fox News. A lot of people get their information on social media platforms. So my view continues to be that the answer in this moment is not to not engage because then you make that the story. There are moments when that might be the right moment, but the moment was not in the first year, two years of an administration following Donald Trump. I mean, Fox would have loved it for us to have a fight with them and kind of a moral, you know, a moral right. fight with them. We don't want to do that. And I didn't want to do that. And none of us wanted to do that. I, I appeared more on Fox News Sunday than I think any other Sunday show. Because you know why? You just go into the den and answer their questions and Democrats watch it, independents, and maybe you get some points across. Okay, I would say- Because they um, enjoy watching you bitch slap Ducey. That's the thing. That's like those viewers well, are like a little bit like, now, yeah. That also goes to the problem we're living in. And, you know, yes, I believe many Democratic things. I've been a Democrat. I am a Democrat, you know, but like Peter Ducey and I would have a back and forth in the briefing room. He would be hero on the right for you know smacking me back and I would be here on the other side for smacking him back it's sort of a small microcosm of what's wrong with how information travels in discourse right because it's the same conversation he and I actually had I know he said this and I've said this a pretty civil 
okay relationship. And I knew he's working for an outlet that is not a supporter of President Biden, not a supporter of Democrats, not a supporter of a lot of the reasons why I got into working in public service and government to begin with. But also there was a reality of the reach of how many people were watching it and the desire not to make that the story that made it in our interest to engage. His interests in engaging were that they wanted to position themselves as the ones who asked the sometimes asshole questions, right? Or the questions that were posed in such a way that they were clearly biased or clearly lacking context, but they could use, again, on their channel to show that they were holding us to account. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, it tells you, it's a it's just an example of maybe like what's wrong with our discourse in some ways, but also he and I had, you know, the last, the last day I was there, I, we took a picture together um, yeah. and he tweeted the picture yeah. and oh, it's, God. it like really blew people's minds for right. some reason. Also right. the fact that he's extremely tall and I'm not, which for right. some reason became like this funny thing. Look, yeah, here's, but, here's, here's what I want to hope, what I hope for for Christmas. You and I can yeah. have a shared Christmas wish. His dad, Steve, wow. du- his dad, Steve Ducey. Um, yeah. Suddenly in the middle of the Mar-a-Lago thing, suddenly started acting like a real journalist. And he started talking about how it was crazy that Trump had taken these classified materials down to Mar-a-Lago. And he started attacking Republicans for, for attacking law enforcement. And at the recount, we started calling him, we started saying it was Dark Ducey, like, like Dark Brandon, right? Dark Ducey was, became a hashtag. <laughs> also he, not an anti-vaxxer. Day after day, Steve Ducey was suddenly acting like a real normal journalist. And I, here's my Christmas wish that we can jointly have together is that like father, like son, maybe we'll start to have Dark Ducey Jr., like suddenly, like out of nowhere, Peter Ducey will start behaving like, you know, like what we would wish all White House correspondents behave Probably like. not in the briefing room, right? Because the briefing room is a performative place. And so, but otherwise, maybe. You know, Jen, Merry you prove, Christmas to all of us. You've proved, many, you've proved many times that the briefing room can be a place where you can be smart, tough, and also nice at the same time. And uh, you also prove you can do that on a podcast. So um, I'm grateful. Thank you for taking the time. It's awesome to see you. I'm glad we're colleagues now, and uh, I'll see you around the water cooler. Sounds good. Hell I Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jennifer R. Saki, the former White House press secretary and now MSNBC analyst and soon-to-be host of her own show, premiering on Peacock in 2023. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and I Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and I Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Zoya Soroy is our researcher and the truth, the light, the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Isaac. He is our executive producer.